You're listening to the Electric Sheep magazine podcast. I'm Alex Fitch, and in this episode, I'm talking to a pair of directors whose most recent projects involve capturing visions of childhood and how that progresses into adulthood. Later in the show, in a Q&A recorded at Sci-Fi London East, the most recent iteration of London's International Science Fiction and Fantastic Film Festival, I'm talking to director Cory Maccabee, creator of the sci-fi musicals The American Astronaut and Stingray Sam, about his latest film Crazy and Thief, a semi-improvised drama which documents the director's children as they journey across New York looking for stars and come across characters inspired by the Odyssey. Before that, I'm talking to Michael Apted about 56 Up, the latest installment of his 7-Up series, which has charted the lives of 14 children from diverse socio-economic backgrounds since the age of 7, with new episodes every 7 years. We're also talking about Michael's involvement with another series that's reached its 50th anniversary, as the director talks about his experiences of making the Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough. Obviously all of the participants have now reached middle age, and for people who are either watching the series the first time, who can catch up with the old clips that are included or have been following it for a number of years. I guess the way that people's lives have changed has varied enormously from person to person. Some people's lives have changed a lot, while others have stayed on the course that they started out. And I guess that was kind of the expectation of the programme from the very first instalment. Well, I suppose, but we weren't trying to anticipate what would happen, happen to them because it was never our intention originally to do this as a long-term job. It was a, started out as a one-off. Mm. Just this group of seven-year-olds talking about the English class system. And we would then surmise from what they were saying whether the class system was changing or not. Mm. And when the film came out, it looked as though it may not be, and that was pretty startling, considering we were living in the middle of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, rock and roll, and brave new worlds. Mm. Um, but... Uh, so it was always just going to be one, and then it grew into this. But uh, you know, we didn't have any long-term expectations, which I think, or any long-term goals of it, other than just to keep going with it once we'd established that this was a really good idea. I think really my job every generation is not to try and anticipate or not trying to find patterns and let the audience figure that out, that out for themselves. I don't want to prejudge or predetermine or anticipate anything that they might say and mm. let let it fall where it falls. Mm. As the director of the series since um, 7 Plus 7, you've become an increasing part of these people's lives. Do you find that the fact that you do keep coming back to them every seven years has affected their lives as well in a way that they're almost anticipating the recording of the change over the last seven years that have taken place? Well, to a certain extent, I don't, I don't necessarily think that they change their lives to fit us. I don't know whether that will be possible. I did ask them this question, I think, at 42 up, and I got lots of different answers, because this is a question everybody asks me. But I, mm. my answer always was, I don't think we do change their lives. Obviously, it has an effect on their lives. It can't be easy. You know, offering your life up for no judgment as it were to a vast audience every seven years mm. but I, whether it actually changes the decisions of their life I, I, I very much doubt the psychological change I, I can't speak of and 
nor apparently convey when asked about it. So I don't really feel it does change their lives. Uh, it might momentarily. I think I remember one of them saying, "Well, I better do something." Michael's due here shortly, and I haven't done much these last ten <laughs> years. But I don't think you can then go out and suddenly decide to do something very important. I think those things happen organically. I don't think they happen have any reason to happen because I'm going to show up. Mm. In terms of the questions that you ask them, how much do you plan in advance and how much do you improvise as the conversations take place because you're finding out things, I guess, as you spend time with them again? Well, it's the second half. You've answered it for me with the second (laughs) half. I mean, I don't... Obviously, I'm aware of the great moments of the series and what people said about this and what they said about that, but I found that it was a mistake to go in with preset questions and I get the best material, the freshest material out of them by improvising, by trying to have a real conversation and not just trying to give them a route to follow. Mm. So again, I I never look at the films before I do the, the next interview, so I don't get bogged down in, oh my goodness, they asked about this and they said this and Mm. that so every seven years I try and get as it were if I can which is hardly humanly possible but a blank slate so you know that I can capture what they're like now rather than just a continuation of previous questions so I've always found it's best what I've learned over these interviews is, is not to plan it at all not to let them know what I'm going to ask about and not even know myself really apart from obvious things that I know about their lives Mm. but to try and keep it as fresh and spontaneous as possible and then then after I've done that then try and weave it in to the to the kind of the bigger picture of you know their their continuing lives Mm. that improvisational quality was that something that you took to fairly early from the first one that you directed or did it take a couple before it was something that you were comfortable doing just arriving in these people's lives and having conversations with them i think i grew into it i think when i started off i remember i would have a list of topics i wanted to hit and all this kind of stuff and i think as particularly as the age difference diminished i mean not in real years Mm. emotionally between us when i was no longer either a a surrogate father or surrogate big brother or whatever that when we became closer in age in fact if you know what i mean emotionally Mm. closer then you know i think that simply made demands that we talked more as equals you know and more rather than you know as the interviewer and interviewee that we had a proper kind of you know level playing field talk about life and everything so i think that grew organically again i got more experienced at it and better at it i think but also you know the age difference did diminish and uh, you know we would then be talking as equals and not in some you know complicated uh, social whatever mm. i'd say which isn't very coherent i'm sure you know what i mean yeah i think it developed this style of interviewing us as we got mature both emotionally and the program got you know more we got more experience at doing it and they got more savvy about what was going on Mm. well and and i guess another interesting part of the show is that that friendships are formed within the group and for example 
in 56 Up, there are two pairs where you interview the people together because I guess they have now spent part of their lives together and perhaps that has changed the course of the way things have happened. Yeah, it's a slightly different thing. I mean, you know, so they have formed relationships. I mean, Bruce and Neil, uh, Bruce, uh, Neil went to live with Bruce mm. when Neil went to London. And so, and Neil was at Bruce's wedding, so there was that relationship. But I think what was more important this time is that they began to tell me what they wanted to do rather than me tell them. And with the Susie Nick one, it was their idea to do it together. Mm. Susie was very nervous about doing it, and she and you know, she and Nick had been corresponding with each other for years. And I think, I think it was Susie's idea that uh, it wouldn't it be good if if we did the interview together. And that was, I mean, I was kind of startled when they said it, but I thought, well, really, I think the whole point of this is that they should, all of them, should own it much more. They should mm. do what I want them to do. I should, if I'm kind of capture their lives as, as they're living them then then you know i should do what they want to do and so i've always gone along with that and, and encouraged it in a way that if they i say well why don't we go and do this as a sequence they say no we don't want to do that but why can't we do this then i get a sense that they own it more and the more they own it i think you know the, the more revelatory it will be and, and and the better the material i'll get so mm. You know, I think it's a, a part of that as well as what you're saying about, you know, them forming bonds. You know, a lot of bonds are established at some point and they continue a little bit. Three girls don't see each other between the films, but mm. they do see each other because they always like to have that three shot, that bit <laughs> of them all together. Mm. Um, so I don't think it's a big part of their lives, but it's something that if they want to continue with it, then I like that. And if they want to create something new that Susie and Nick did and I also welcome that. Mm. This instalment is the longest so far with it spread over three episodes and I guess that's partially dictated by the fact that 56 Up has 13 of the original participants back together which is the largest number since 21 Up and also I guess as time progresses and you have clips from previous shows then you need a longer amount of time to incorporate the flashbacks as well. Well, that's not true, because I always okay. try and keep the, the film the same length, between 133 and 138 minutes, because I always like to have a, a, a version of the film which is just one film, and mm. you can't ask an audience to sit for longer mm. you know, than two hours, 20 minutes, watching almost anything. So I do restrain myself. I did have the, as you say, the 13th one back, but then I did put sick and... Uh, Susie and Nick together. Mm. So I've always tried to keep the film manageable in its running time, so it doesn't really expand as such. I mean, yes, you're right, this is the eighth generation, so stuff has to be sacrificed all the time, but it's just this sense that, particularly in America, we get the cinema release in Canada and Australia and all this in other places, and I think that, you know, in other outlets for it, it's nice that you see it as a whole piece rather Mm. than broken down fit you know television restrictions or whatever and the idea to do it in three three one hours in prime time was itv's idea for this particular generation it's the first time we've ever done that although 49 was the same length that they chose to show that in two episodes so i'm very flexible about you know how the thing is broadcast on television and i think in different countries it may be broadcast differently 
because it's not easy, it's not difficult to change the format. You just you know, move the chapters around. But I do want to preserve the, the one-off version of it, so that's why I don't allow the, you know, the running time just to go, go out of control. Mm. Are you ever tempted to do a, a longer cut for the DVD? Because obviously you shoot considerably more footage than is seen on screen. Well, no, again, I, I preserve the original film. I mean... I'm a little annoyed about this one because I wasn't told anything about this. And I know at 49 we did some extras and you know, people talked about it, which I think would have been interesting for people, but ITV chose not to tell us anything about it. Right. The first I heard about it was a couple of days ago when I, you know, I got an invitation from you and a couple of other journalists to talk about it. It's the first I knew it was coming out. So. Right. But uh, I'm all for having extras on the DVD, but they didn't bother with it this time. But mm. I, I certainly don't put more material in um, than there is in the film, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the body of the film. You know, it's a very difficult issue for me because obviously a lot of people say, why don't I turn over this material to you know, some research unit or something like that. But, you know, I'm very aware that people, the people in the film are very possessive or, and or nervous about how much stuff I use and what I do use. And they always want to know what I'm going to use. And I think they would be very unhappy about it if I just turned everything over mm. to s some other organization or made a much longer DVD of it. Because there may well be things that they don't want to you know, have aired in whatever format we decide to do it. So mm. I just have to keep a careful watch on that because, you know, I have to protect them, protect their interests, otherwise they won't come back. So, mm. you know, it's a fairly delicate thing, you know, what we use, how much we use, and how much we expose <coughs> of what they say. So for the moment, you know, I'm not sort of prepared just to open it up willy-nilly and just put much more stuff in than we used in the film. Mm. I mean, obviously, that level of trust with you has developed over the years. But with this episode, Peter comes back for the first time since 28 Up because he was stung by um, tabloid criticism at the time. I mean, that really anticipated, I guess, you know, the rise of reality television where people in the media talk about real people on television as if they're characters, oblivious to the fact that their feelings may be hurt in real life. When you were making this series... Did that is the 500-pound gorilla that's been with yeah. of tremendous amount of, of reality television, and so that has made it a bit more difficult to deal with it and, and to, to protect their privacy and whatever without sort of having to simply emasculate the film and only use stuff that everybody's you know I don't want to make the film bland and just to have you know no, no controversy or no arguments in mm. between me and them I want to preserve that so again you know I have to be sensitive to their feelings and they I have built a trust with them and, and with Claire over the years and you know it, I, I think that trust has uh, uh, has served us in good stead and it has to extend to you know the DVD and whatever other forms people want the film to take so mm. I just have to preserve that because you know that's at the heart of the whole operation that, that trust between us and them yeah at the risk of asking a morbid question someone like Ray Harryhausen for example is 92 and very sprightly so it's not inconceivable that your good self uh, would still be around to do 77 up or you know even 84 up but there must 
come a point where you're no longer around to do the documentaries and i guess would that be the end of the series because the trust they've developed with you wouldn't be i i, I can imagine actually if i do 84 i'd be 99 yeah always makes me laugh um i don't know whether it would whether claire would carry it on whether they would want to go it on i, mean, mm. I hope they would um you know I don't find that morbid. What I find morbid is, you know, the fact that they may, some of them may pass away before I do, yeah. and then what do I do? Um, so I find that very difficult to even confront, and only want to have to think about it if it's going to happen. But no, I mean, I would hope that Claire could keep it going. Mm. Whether they would let anybody new come in, I don't know. I, I, I doubt it somehow, but who, who's to know? Mm. While making this series, you've obviously made other documentaries in between and fictional films as well. Has there been any interrelation as far as you've been concerned with your experiences making this and your experiences making other projects? Well, I I think, you know, I mean, I I think most of my work is really driven by, you know, my documentary spirit, Mm. as it were. Um, And so I think this series has been very influential in all my work since this was the first thing I was ever involved in and it's been going and clearly as far as documentaries go this is you know, my, my biggest assignment and you know, I've, I've always found that I use documentary techniques in doing movies and but of course they work the other way around as well I use narrative techniques in putting these films together because I'm putting together character studies and all that sort of thing. So I've always found there's a tremendous, it's a two-way street between the documentary efforts and the, and the fiction efforts. And uh, I'm always kind of intrigued by, you know, how that happens and how it changes my approach to stuff and whatever. So I think, you know, you, I can't isolate whether I'm doing Bond or whether I'm doing, um, you know, 42 Up or whatever I was doing when I did my Bond. But mm. you know, I think there's a tremendous interplay between the two you know, between the two um, mediums, really, or the two disciplines, and it always interests me about you know how I move between the two of them and what fiction muscles I have and what non-fiction muscles I have. It's always kind of the process of figuring it out for myself. Mm. But I am aware that the lessons I learn in fiction about storytelling and character building is very, very valuable in putting these particular chapters together in this particular series of films because you know, as you mentioned I have so much material you know, it's kind of difficult to know what to use and what not to use mm. I think one of your interviewees mentions in this one how the series not only shows how their lives have developed but also how society has changed during the making of the series and it's interesting that you mention Bond because that's another series that reaches its 50th anniversary within a few months of the 7-Up series. And again, Bond has shown changing social attitudes over the years as well. I mean, did you experience any correlation like that in terms of, of culture changing as your career has progressed? Well, no, I mean, I can't really answer that. Mm. Except, yes, of course, Bond changes as the culture changes, absolutely. And Again, I mean, I was brought in to do a bond for, for strong cultural reasons. You know, they wanted more women to be interested in it. So they wanted right. to put more women in the center of the story, and I had a reputation for working well with women, so that why was, that's why I was brought in, and that was a fairly self-conscious effort by the bond people. 
you know, to change the kind of cultural context. I don't know whether it worked in terms of whether it attracted more women into the audience because mm. they had a lot of trouble you know, getting women, girls into the into the show. It was very much a male orientated audience. So I don't know about that. But you know, with um, I think with the up films, I've deliberately tried to avoid being overtly political or, or explaining what's going on in the generation of the particular film. Because I've always felt that the politics of the up films is in the characters themselves and their lives are the political statements. So any external politicizing on my part seems irrelevant. I mean, it's I want them to discuss the recession, but only in context of their own lives. I mm. want their opinions about a Labour government or a Tory government or this. I wanted to see how the recession has affected them. For more information about the 7up series' latest instalment, 56up, please go to tinyurl.com stroke 56up DVD. Next, here's my interview with Corey Maccabee about his new film Crazy and Thief, and after the interview, Corey will be performing a track from the soundtrack. So that was kind of like Harmony Corrin meets James Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> what was the um, inspiration behind making this film? Um, I, I, well, the, there was a lot of inspiration behind the, the choices I made, mm. um, but, but the overall inspiration for the film uh, was um, I, I wanted to make something that was kind. Um, and uh, I wanted to make a, a nice portrait of, of childhood, and not in the way that Hollywood shows children, you know, trying to make something sentimental or, or something uh, that's supposed to be what kids might think is cool kind of thing. I wanted to make something that I thought was a real genuine portrait. So I wrote it based on everything that the kids said and did mm-hmm. and, and what I thought they'd feel comfortable doing uh, while, while working on a film. And, uh, like, one example, which seems kind of odd, but it was something Willis said, uh, the thing about the time machine, the, mm-hmm. she saw a nativity scene when she was four, and she said, I think that box holds the body of the dead grown-up Jesus, and he's going to show it to the baby Jesus. And I, <laughs> but so, so everything in there is, ha- has to do with them and, and who they are as people. And well, that's not entirely off base, because uh, isn't frankincense an embalming agent? Yes, it was. And, and uh, it also, I found out, I was talking to this uh, gentleman who was a, a monk from Switzerland, and he, he said that... Uh, when I told him that, he goes, "That's something. That's something." He goes, "There's the, there's this thing about how, the the all that stuff was written long after the death, and so mm. it, it it was all meant to tie together and, and be symbolic of each other." Mm. So, how much of the dialogue was improvised, and how much were you suggesting the ideas for uh, scenes with them? I wrote a 30-minute screenplay and said I'm going to make a approximately 60-minute film, mm. and uh, went out to to do so. A lot of it was kept pretty much straight to the script. Uh, some of it I had written scenes with ideas that I wanted to cover. I kind of look at this the way it's put together and edited and everything, being more like a painting. you know. Mm. And uh, so there were certain things that happened organically that matched the my intentions for certain things I had written. Um, there was one scene that happened in a park with a scooter where they sang sort of spontaneously, but it was written. And then Johnny just covered it when uh, some car alarm went off and just started singing along with it. And I was like, all right, that's better than what I had. <laughs> so it, it was half and, half and half. Mm. And, I mean, the locations uh, around New York, 
did you get filming permits or did you just kind of do it Gonzo style and go out with a camera and hope for the best? Yeah, I went out with two cameras and some little kids and nobody asked questions. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how we filmed in, a, in Penn Station. You, know, you, have to, you have to do official things to do such a thing. But we just went in and, and started filming and nobody cared. <laughs> Um, like you said at the beginning, it's very much a different uh, change of style to your two previous films, The American Astronaut and Stingray Sam, which were black and white, were kind of musicals and had a sort of a structure around, I guess, almost like being a traditional musical, or this was much more sort of freeform. What made you want to do a film in this style? Well, in doing a portrait of childhood, one, one thing that inspired me uh, a lot was early, the, like the first seasons of Sesame Street. Um, I wanted to use their format to make a, a, a film, and in Sesame Street they would talk about something and then suddenly someone would say, pigs, and then you'd see <laughs> movies about pigs with some song playing, and, and it's just these little vignettes, so I wanted to structure a, 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 a small feature that way, and uh, tre treat that as a musical, because I mean those are musicals, the, mm. those episodes, there's all singing and all sorts of things. But uh, I also, uh, my other things, my other films are always very s structured and storyboarded and, and the films look like the storyboards. Mm. So I wanted to do something that was a little bit more free, which I thought was more in keeping with, with the, the children, um, or with, with children in general. E even the, the, the camera motions and the edits, and using what I call dirty edits, where we just pick things based on the uh, composition rather than the focus or mm. anything, and, and the way that <coughs> jerky movements worked in and out of each other and everything, I thought was very kind of young and mm. free and fresh. Well, I really like that sequence where she's trying to wrestle him off some railings and you just <laughs> you cut to various other brief shots of them, you know, kind of like wrestling for supremacy, I yeah. guess. Right. Yeah, there was there was plenty to choose from. So. <laughs> the weird thing about watching it is you get so used to depictions of predators of children in movies and so you immediately think that the adults are up to no good yeah. and it's weird seeing a film where the kids are just completely safe from beginning to end yeah well weird evil adults are you know much rarer than mm. you know than we think because we see them in our homes on television every day you know but uh you know just the fact that there's there's an adult male trying to connect with children is like you know mm. it, it's like M, you know. So um, so I, I wanted to I wanted to have two adult males as the only because uh, most of the film shot from the child's perspective. It's you know mm. you know waist down for the, is, is their their landscape. But I wanted to have two adult males. One who's the the cyclops in the park who's you know kind of simple and he's just trying to connect with the kids. And then the other one who you know when he comes and grabs him. It, it seems horrifying, but to him, it's horrifying that these kids should be underneath yeah. uh, an overpass. He's actually a really good guy, and uh, but he's he's the great threat because he's really trying to do something for the kids and mm. and trying to bring them back into the real world. And and so he's, you know, he's he he is the, he represents the real world. Mm. Another thing in the landscape is is capturing all the graphics. One thing I like about this, which is something I wanted to do, is um, have have a film that would change with time. So I kept it all very organic to now, like those Dorito bags, you know, in the in the the store. In ten years, they won't look like that anymore. So when you see them, you'll, you'll they'll feel different to you. And all the beer bottles and garbage and everything that they're looking for stars in uh, is going to evolve as time goes on. And so ten years from now, when you see Johnny in his little dollar store cheapo Croc shoes, you know, <laughs> running around, I mean, th those things aren't going to probably be 
common anymore. Mm. So it, it's making a little time capsule that will, it, the film will change and your perception of the film will change as it, as, as, as it gets older. Mm. Well, and in so much that any film becomes a time machine, the more time passes since it was shot. Yeah. I mentioned Joyce at the beginning, mainly because of your uh, intertitles of the characters being called Cyclops and uh, a section being called Underworld, which very much kind of evoke, at least for me, uh, Joyce's vision of Ulysses and Dublin. Was that anything uh, that was inspirational to you? Well, the, the, the Greek myths, my, my wife was reading them to Willa uh, at the time I was writing it, and, uh, she, or, or around that time, and she... Um, I realized that those those characters are they're common in in in, um, in children's uh, you know cartoons and everything. They, 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 it's it's in their in the, they 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 know these characters, um, I, but I wanted to use them to create this journey for the kids because um, they're definitely on a journey in this film, and and help create in their eyes this. Fantasy world, which is what the whole film is supposed to be, is this fantasy. I was going to say one thing it has in common with my other two features, Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, is they all start with star charts. <laughs> so, yeah, this one does too. And and there's a lot of things that actually I find as as, as I watch it, they they weave together. But um, anyway, that was a sidetrack. But huh? but yeah, it was. I wanted to I wanted to use those 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 images and those characters and and. Uh, to make to make what's happening in the world seem grander, like the fact that the giant is a threat mm. and he is a giant to mm. them, and and the cyclops, he's that that was Greg Cook from uh, the American Astronaut. He was the boy who saw a woman's breast, and um, <laughs> and he uh, some some he got attacked. Some guys jumped him and they 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 cut his throat and they slit his face. Yeah, it was horrible. And so um, and he's older now and he's kind of burly and he goes, hey, you got a part for a scarred up, you know? And I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, Greg. So. Um, <laughs> So I said, can you see that scar across your eye? You know, and he goes, well, I could shave my eyebrow there. You'll be able to see it real well. I'm like, no, don't do that. Just, just keep your eye closed. And uh, so he did, and it was very effective. That made our cyclops. He has this organic scar, and his eyes closed the whole time he's talking. And, and so that created that character. And then Willis spells it out in her map. As, mm. So. Mm. I was reading uh, Michael Chabon, who wrote The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. He didn't... A collection of essays a couple of years ago called Manhood for Amateurs and in that one of his pieces is about how he remembers being a kid and how it was really common for kids just to play in abandoned lots and on the street and that's something you just don't see anymore and in that sense this film seems to be very much evoking almost a lost world in terms of the freedom that children have these days. Well, the, when, I, when I mentioned Sesame Street uh, we bought the first season of Sesame Street uh, to show the kids and there's a um, there's a warning at the beginning saying not intended for preschoolers <laughs> because you know they're out running around in junkyards and jumping off of things and I, I get, and you know you've got Jesse Jackson saying you know I am a human being and you know all this stuff that's very you know you, you wouldn't show that to preschoolers now but I mean the stuff they have now it's interesting that the people who make Sesame Street now were raised on Sesame Street you know and and uh, if you go on YouTube you can see. Stevie Wonder playing Satisfaction when it was a hit, and it's like a seven-minute jam. <laughs> you know, and they did that for kids. Now they're like, this is how you bounce a ball, and it's really boring and, you know, great. So, so anyway, yeah, that, that, yes. The answer was yes. <laughs> so, so. Um, does anyone in the audience have any questions for Corey? I understand you were a student in George Kuchar's film class in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, George, I, I, was, I was never a student of George's. I was a friend of George's, and... Uh, 
George Kachar is a wonderful filmmaker, and, and if you have a chance, there's a, a, a documentary called um, uh, It Came From Kachar, and you know, I, you know I, I like the documentary It Came From Kachar more than I like their films, personally, <laughs> because I like them as people, and it's just a great portrait of, of them as people, and George is so funny. I used to go by his class, and, and uh, he'd be like, he, he would ask me to come and show my short films when I was making short films, and he'd go, oh, we want you to be in a movie, you know, we want you to be in this film, you know. So, uh, so I, I ended up in three of his movies, uh, proudly enough. But um, George, uh, it was funny, Tom Aldrich, who we were talking about earlier, who is the old man who told the joke in the bar of the American astronaut, um, he passed away last year, and George passed away last year, and I, and I watched the Academy Awards just to see, I, I normally don't watch that stuff, but I, I wanted to see if they mentioned Tom Aldridge, and they didn't, but they mentioned George, which just blew me away, because he's definitely not an L.A. guy. So anyway, yeah, get, uh, it came from Kachar. It's, it's an amazing documentary on an on a incredible two guys, twin brothers. I grew, I grew up in San Francisco, um, but or just outside of San Francisco, and then when uh, I became a young adult, I moved into San Francisco and uh, uh, worked as a um, the head of security in nightclubs. <laughs> so you can probably run against. And um, the um, uh, but always had a desire to go on stage. I well, actually, I did. I, I I had terrible stage fright. I was performing a lot and doing different things in in, in clubs when I was uh, a young male. Bum. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but uh, the um, now, now I've been living in New York. For, I moved to Chicago for a couple of years, and I've been living in New York for about 12, 13 years. Yeah, I've got two features: uh, the American Astronaut and uh, Stingray Sam. And Greg, the Cyclops, was in the American Astronaut, and Stingray Sam, my daughter, was in that one. She plays the Carpenter's daughter. Um, Scott Miller, uh, who plays her father, in briefly in the film, uh, was the other DP. He was also the DP for. Um, for that film, and Graham, our carpenter, our, our um, giant, was the carpenter. He built all the sets for Stingray Sam. So you know, it's a tight unit. I've got a couple more films I'm working on now. I've I've been talking about this werewolf film for ten years, and it looks like I might be able to make it uh, in Australia. They're they're talking about that, and I just wrote an opera, uh, which is uh, um, being uh, produced by the direct Justin Lin, who directs the Fast and the Furious films. And because natural trajectory for his career <laughs> to <laughs> produce, but uh, I think I think the producers he's working with are getting a little nervous. I think they woke up one morning and they're like, "What the hell are we doing?" And uh, they're going, "There's no hero in this." And I'm like, "Yeah, there's no hero in this." And they're like, "Yeah, but there's no hero." And I'm like, "Yeah, exactly." So you know, conversations are starting to go around. Um, but they're wonderful people. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to work with them, and they actually did help develop the script a lot. And um, and that made you add a car chase to the movie. Yeah, there's no car chases in, in this. It's it's yeah, it's all all on foot. So. But uh, anyway, so those are those are future films. Also, there's one that Captain Ahab's Motorcycle Club is going to be making. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. The the Billy Nair show I was playing with for 20 years, and basically the Billy Nair show was me and the drummer Bobby Lurie, and uh, we just about a year ago parted ways. This was the last thing we did together. Um, most of the soundtrack is electric auto harp and drums and vocals, and uh, some piano. Um, but he's got a recording studio and he's doing he's busy doing that and working together is very because of everything else we were doing it was very difficult to make movies uh, more than one every 10 years so I became more interested in that so we're we're doing different things now.
but um, this, uh, yeah, I wrote this. I wrote most of the songs for the soundtrack. Like "Come On Train" uh, was one that I wrote for the film. Uh, some of the films I, or some of the songs I made up playing with the kids. Uh, like "I'm a Rocket" uh, was one where my kids would go, oh, "Run like a rocket," and I go, "Okay," and and I would grab their hand and go, "What?" One, two, three, I'm a rocket! And I'd start running, and they would run trying to keep on beat, and I'd be running faster than they could, so they'd be basically flying through the air and just on beat, bouncing off the sidewalk and flying, and it looked very dangerous, but it was, it was, they were fine. <laughs> no, I'm the one who's not fine anymore. I, I f flew off a skateboard a couple of years ago and smashed my hip, so it caught up to me. Captain Ahab's Motorcycle Club is something um, that's a, if you definitely go online, look at CaptainAhabsMotorcycleClub.com, also join us on Facebook, and uh, we, we um, it's starting off with graphic design and music, and there's a wonderful collection of chapter patches uh, for Captain Ahab's Motorcycle and we also have music, and so, so, so the songs, uh, the songs, some of them aren't as nice, I can skip over those if we need to, but uh, the... Um, there, there's songs up there, and, and the songs, you can download them for free. You can send them out to your friends. Do whatever you want with them. Just don't sell them. But you can also download each individual track and a click track and scratch vocals, and people have begun sending us additional tracks for these. And people have also uh, been um, sending their own mixes. And so the idea is I have these, these very simple tracks, which I brought with me, um, which are the beginning tracks. I, don't, I didn't bring the new ones yet because I... Still have to work with those, but um, the, as the, people are going to continue making these tracks, and I go around and I sing to them. So as they continue to mutate and evolve, I will continue singing to them. Eventually, we're all going to make a feature film, and this is just how we're working together doing the soundtrack for the, the film. Though this isn't, sorry, let me backtrack. This won't be the music for the film. This is for the club. This is just some of the basic tracks. Are mostly auto harp and organ, and uh, some this and that. Oop, I'm not pushing that button again. I've learned my lesson last night. Um, let's see. Now you're traveling to distant stars. Didn't that mean breaking her heart? All alone she sits and cries for her diamond in the sky. That's our sound check. Okay, that's our sound check song. Here we go. We'll move into it. I was born in the 20th century. Well, you might have heard about it. Well, yeah, that was me. You saw me in your pictures. You saw me in your books. If you think you might have missed it, turn around and take a look. Because I'm the first freak found by P.T. Barnum. I'm the first to take a train to see jazz up in Harlem. The first to play country. The first to play pop. I'm the first to drop acid and the first one to stop. And I'm the first to take art to a whole new level. Make it so full of shit that you gotta bring a shovel. The first to drive a car to win a girl's attention. And I've done a lot of things that I don't want to mention. That's the way I was born. That's the way that I am. And I'm still just a 20th century man. And I know what they'll say on the day that I die. They'll say, there goes a 20th century guy. 
I'm the first man to ever throw his pager in the ocean. I'm the first man to hold hands and do the locomotion. I'm the first boy to put peanut butter on his chocolate. I'm the first boy to ever tie a toy to a rocket. That's the way I was born. That's the way that I am. And I'm still just a 20th century man. And I know what they'll say on the day that I die. They'll say, there goes a 20th century guy. That's the way I was born, that's the way that I am, and I'm still just a 20th century man. And I know what they'll say on the day that I die, they'll say, there goes a 20th century guy. Thank you. For more information about Cory Maccabee's films, please go to www.corymaccabee.com. That's C-O-R-Y-M-C-A-B-E-E dot com. And for more information about Sci-Fi London, where the Q&A was recorded, please go to sci-fi london dot com. Continuing today's theme of a documentary approach to capturing people's lives as they progress, in Sunday's episode of Panel Borders, I'll be talking to Aileen and Robert Crumb, whose latest book, Drawn Together, collects 40 years of the duo's autobiographical collaborative strips. That's at www.panelborders.wordpress.com at 8pm on Sunday. For previous episodes of the Electric Sheep Magazine podcast, please go to electricsheepmagazine.com stroke events, where you can find more information about forthcoming radio broadcasts, which myself and Electric Sheep editor Virginie Selavy will be presenting on Resonance FM. The Electric Sheep magazine podcast was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a panel borders production, and there'll be a new episode online soon. Thanks for listening.